There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi there and welcome to the Stop Club podcast. I'm James and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor Emmett Savage and our head analyst Rory Caron. In this week's episode, we're talking about how Disney is the perfect microcosm of the wider market in this coronavirus pandemic, the companies we'll be looking at most closely for this earnings season, and our favourite contrarian investment at the minute. So guys, this is our third remote podcast since the lockdown, and so far only one of us has shaved our head. Emmett, you finally caved into no hairdressers. I did actually, and I've noticed that it's a style that's catching um. Yeah, I think I think there's there's three or four four um, people in the office, or, or I suppose on Zoom. There's no in the office anymore. I've seen have a have succumbed to the shaved head. Rory, are you contemplating it? I can't do it because I shaved my head when I was a teenager, and I have a kind of odd shaped head. So <laughs> I would I would love a haircut so much, though. I would I'll give free stock advice for a haircut right now. <laughs> yeah. Well, yesterday when we were uh, preparing notes for this podcast, we had a quick chat about uh, h- how soon or how long it will take you to go back to uh, a hairdresser's or barber's after this. And I think we were, we all said we'd be a bit slow, even if our locks are getting a bit long. Yeah, we're not going to look like Wall Street guys by the end of this, definitely. <laughs> no, that's right. <laughs> but you know, it's funny. There is an irony in there because I remember Warren Buffett once said of all the businesses that's most recession-proof, it's a barber. Like, no matter what the times are, what times you're in, you're going to get your hair cut. Um, yeah. And I guess he never quite envisaged a global pandemic where you just don't want some stranger rubbing your head for half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. So um, speaking of the pandemic, um, one company that appears like a microcosm for the wider impacts of the coronavirus on the market is Disney. Um, so on one hand, the company's new streaming service, Disney Plus, has been a roaring success. Um, it's racked up more than 50 million subscribers since launching last November. That's nearly a third of Netflix's global audience. Uh, and this has been undoubtedly helped by most of the world having to stay at home um, because of coronavirus. Other parts of Disney's empire are being really hurt, though. Um, all Disney parks have been closed indefinitely. Um, this is a segment of Disney's business that brings in about $20 billion a year. So it's a huge part of Disney's business. Um, Disney cruises have also been suspended, which is, I suppose, a bit unsurprising. And at the box office, too, Disney's really suffering. New releases like Mulan have been put on hold. And staff at Marvel, Lucasfilm, Pixar and Searchlight have all been furlocked uh, recently. Uh, even CEO Bob Iger, who announced not that long ago he would be stepping down, has said he'll delay his retirement to see the company through this storm. Um, Emin, I'm going to come to you first about Disney. Disney is about 30% down um, at the moment from its recent highs. In, in light of all that information, do you think that's a bargain for a company like Disney or is there more pain in store? Yeah, that is the question. You know, at the, at, at look as cutting to wide shot, Disney is the company that has touched everyone in the Western world's life. Like there, yeah. there is no listener here who has not been in some way touched. 
by Disney positively. I mean, there's other giant brands like Diageo or Johnson & Johnson. You might have gotten to a point in your life where you've never experienced a product, but Disney is the company that has touched all of our lives. So um, looking at the business, it operates yeah. four business segments, which together last year produced just nearly $70 billion in revenue in the year of 2019 it was $69.8 billion last year. So those segments are those four segments are parks, experiences and products, which is one, one segment. And that accounted for about 37% of the revenue. Media networks accounted for 35% of the revenue. Studio entertainment was 16% and then direct to consumer and international sales was 12%. So two of these segments which together accounted for half of Disney's 2019 revenue, have now effectively shuttered. They're closed. Yeah. Parks and Experience and Studio Entertainment, which is movie and live entertainments and music production and distribution. So two of the four segments are closed, and those two segments together brought in half of the $70 billion last year. So, you know... It is, this is the crystal ball time, like how long are those two segments going to remain shuttered? And it's anyone's guess at this moment. So that's the kind of, that's the bare argument. That's the problem we're looking at at the moment with Disney, that it has effectively closed half of its earning capability uh, until further notice. Then on yeah. bull side of the argument, we know that Disney Plus is out there. It's a great bargain. We're all locked at home. Um, mm. They've onboarded 50 million um, users in a very, very short time. But even when you do back-of-the-envelope calculations on what even 100 million Disney Plus subscribers looks like, it doesn't really... Uh, compensate at a revenue level for shutting down 50% of the revenue capability from 2019. So um, so is Disney a bargain at the moment? I personally wouldn't call it a bargain. I, uh, what I would say is that I do believe buyers today who just leave it there, just say, this is great, I'm getting Disney at circa 100 bucks a share, it was 150 a few months ago, and just leave it, as I would always say, the bedrock of their portfolio um, will benefit. And and Disney is my favorite long-term investment. It pretty much always has been. It will yeah. remain in my portfolio forever. I'm a huge fan. So I don't think buyers today will be disappointed or let down or or. or suffer a loss with a long-term perspective. I, I think it is, frankly, the most magnificent business in the world who are yep. facing down a big trouble at the moment. I'm pretty sure Luke, our producer, who's always on the call but never speaks, would agree with me because he's a hyper-Disney fan. But like the, it, the fact, coming back to the first point I made, that it has touched all our lives, it's touched all our lives positively. It's a magnificent machine that delivers happiness. And yeah, half of it is closed at the moment, but I don't think buyers today will be disappointed over the long term. What do you think? Absolutely. Yeah, Rory, I was just going to come to you. Have you subscribed to Disney Plus yet? I actually have, but I haven't even watched anything on it yet. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Disney was one of those companies that we had in the showroom that for kind of like five years kind of didn't do anything. They had a kind of quiet few years um, and the stock kind of stayed pretty much exactly where it was. I think it was like flat. Yeah. You know, it was around the 120 level for, for so, so long. And in the last year, it's just like everything's happening. You know, it's um, they're getting into the streaming they're kind of losing their longtime CEO. We don't know. Yeah. Yet. <laughs> and now there's a global pandemic, which is attacking pretty much every segment of their business. 
reportedly costing them $30 million a day, which is really, really incredible, you know? Just to touch on what you said, Emmett, there with like with the revenue that's been generated by parks and media networks, they're both the most profitable segments as well. They bring it, bring in almost all the profits um, for the companies. Studios don't bring in much at all, actually, even though that's the kind of the most visible part of Disney. You probably see, you know, the big blockbusters and all the fanfare that comes along with that. I just want to take you back to a time where another kind of crisis occurred that had a big impact on Disney, and that was in. Uh, 1973, they had two parks, one in California, one in Florida, and OPEC announced an oil embargo on the United States, and the price of oil rose 400% in the space of a couple of months. Um, suddenly, driving to Disneyland was not an option for an awful lot of people. Uh, not only could they not actually, could they not afford it, but they were actually worried they wouldn't be able to get gas to drive home. And this was when two-thirds of the revenue were coming from those two resorts. And um, during that time, shares went from $120 to $37. That was a 70% drop for Disneyland. Wow. wow. Amazing. That, that's not split adjusted then. And this led them to do some really weird things. They diversified their business quite a lot. They started a cattle business. They took 1,000 acres to raise cattle. What? To, the, <laughs> to get into the beef business. Uh, they had 800 acres uh, for reforestation to start a paper and pulp company. So they really did an awful lot of stuff to try and quell this, this uh, oil embargo that was really destroying their business at the time. And, you know, there's definitely kind of the similar things happening right now. Um, and, you know, people are talking about Disney Plus being doing very well. And of course it has. But like, you know, if you take those 50 million subs and just assume that they're paying the annual $70 per year, that's $3.5 billion. That doesn't even come close to covering the parks and experiences at the moment. And even the media networks, which you would think would kind of be um, not affected as much by this, you know, ESPN is the crown jewel of that business and yeah. zero sports on at the moment. So they're already losing a lot of subscribers, you know, with no sporting events coming for another couple of months. This could be the catalyst for a lot of people to make, to cancel that subscription. And, mm. um, you know, they've, you know, they've also got a bit of debt that they've taken on because of the Fox acquisition. So yeah, they're in a they're in a tight spot at the moment. I'm glad Iger's staying on to to kind of see see this through because um yeah, they've got a lot of challenges ahead of them. Yeah. Recently, Rory, um, you wrote a daily insight about um it was kind of about the the movie industry at the moment and how a lot of kind of new releases and and movies that were scheduled to come out are being delayed and how some of them are also just going direct to to consumer platforms. Do you think that's an option Disney might take with with some of their movies that they'll just add them straight to Disney Plus rather than wait until possibly the fall to to get these movies out? Well, that's an option available only for some films because when you get to the kind of AAA blockbusters that Disney make, it's economically unviable to go straight to streaming. You know, they really okay. do need to bring in that money in the box office. Otherwise, they're losing huge amounts. And even when they go into the box office, there's also a kind of like a kind of squeeze of value from new releases where they're in the cinema for a while, then they're kind of on DVD for a while, then they're given to the paid TV services, and it kind of trickles down all the way down to being on the free streaming services or the subscription streaming services. So that's a whole kind of dance that's, that's not going to get done over the next couple of months, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So moving on from Disney then, um, it's earnings season at the moment, hard as that might be to believe, and um, this will be one like no other. 
uh, with the effects of the coronavirus lockdown becoming evident in the results and forecasts probably uh, very likely impacted by this widespread uncertainty. Um, Emmett, we've spoken about earnings before in, in, I suppose, simpler times here on the podcast. And you've mentioned before that you've never really been a big fan of, of the quarterly earnings report cycle. Mm, that's right. And it's it's a, it's an exclusive reserve of the US stock market system. And the US stock market system is the greatest wealth creation mechanism in the world. And it has all the checkpoints that we want as retail investors. But I think this is one that's just too frequent and drives the wrong behavior. You know, 12 weeks rolls around fast and management yeah. teams that are concerned with delivering against guidance they've given for three months from now, uh, they it's not always going to drive the right behavior. It doesn't necessarily always drive the wrong behavior, but it is something that uh, we would rather see less of. And, and the greatest investment minds, uh, I think, collectively would agree that um, biannual or annual reporting would be good enough. Let the business get on with delivering against the strategy that they've stated in their annual report. Um, yeah, they, you're absolutely right. The strangest of times, because, uh, for example, Rory and I the other day were diving into the SEC website to get to the bottom of the cash position of some stocks that we were examining, because more so than ever, in this earnings season, what every investor has to consider is the, the foundational question, can this business survive the year ahead? Does yeah. it have the cash reserves to keep going? Uh, I think the four of us were chatting yesterday and it was I had to do a double check just to see, am I absolutely right in reading that, like Carnival Cruise Lines, as an example, needs $1 billion a month to simply keep the lights on, to not go wow. under. And, and that, those type of numbers are ginormous when nothing's coming in. So we've gone into a position now and, and to just, it's very, very difficult. You can read off the balance sheet what the cash position for any business is as of the last report. You can get a read on the credit lines available, but you don't and we don't have a full transparent view of how much cash this business can actually get its hands on at a reasonable rate to keep going. So, for example, nobody really knows when and how the business world is going to come back out of this uh, pandemic crisis. You know, we, we, we can hear our politicians and leaders talk about dates when social distancing will be relaxed, but we all know the social question when, in fact, are we going to go back into restaurants, theme parks, cinemas, and so on remains to be seen. Yeah. And, and, and therefore, I think it's only prudent to kind of think about our investments. Can they, can they survive if the current situation lasts for another 18 months? And that's horrible. A year and a half is horrible. Nobody wants this to go on for a year and a half. But that's, I, in my mind, that's probably a worst case scenario. I don't believe that'll be the case. But I'm trying to look at stocks now to see and businesses see, can they survive a year to a year and a half if the current, you know, situation becomes the, state, the status quo? So, so usually when, you know, earnings season comes around, we're looking at the quarterly reports of companies. Yeah. We're usually looking for growth and, yeah. you know, expansion and, and future plans to, to keep on that upward trajectory. What, is what analysts and I suppose ourselves going to be looking at now is, are they able to just survive? Yeah, 
I'd say in this quarterly earnings season, we're going to hear more conversations of survivorship than ever before, where yeah. we want to hear our leaders explain that they have battened down the hatches, they're cutting costs, they're raising cash, they, you know, they're weathering this storm, because that's really, that's so, so important right now. Every single person listening to this podcast's behavior has drastically changed in the last eight weeks. And that has is amplified across everyone in the world. And that is something we just want to hear our businesses acknowledge and explain to us how it affects their business. I mean, it is, it, it, there's also another side to the coin, which is every business is either going to benefit or hurt from this situation. Yeah. There's well, that was the name. Event. Yeah, that was the next question, Adam. I might throw that to you, Rory. Is is there any companies you're you're really closely looking at, you know, coming into, into earnings season that will either be really, really hurt or or possibly benefit a lot from from this kind of current climate? Well well of course the, the earnings that we're gonna get now are kind of quite inconsequential because it hadn't really all kicked off. Yeah, it was the towards the end of March really. Yeah. So and I mean Really, the stock market is a forward-looking mechanism, you know, and, you know, always try and get in, uh, novice investors not to pay too much attention to quarterly earnings reports, because if you're going to own a stock for 10 years, a quarterly earnings report represents one fortieth of the time you're going to own that stock. It's a very small yeah. percentage of your ownership of that business. In a situation like this, I, I really feel like the earnings are going to be kind of almost just ignored by the market. Um, guidance is really what's going to drive uh, the way the stocks behave. Yeah. And that's kind of bizarre because no one can really give proper guidance right now because we just don't know how long this is going to last and we don't know what the long-term in- impact is going to be. So I feel for definitely this earnings season and the, probably the next one, there's going to be an awful lot of people saying, oh, earnings don't matter, earnings don't matter. And they probably don't. Um, and then you'll probably get the people saying, oh, look how fast earnings are rebounding and it'll become important all of a sudden then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like, it, it'll be interesting to see, I suppose, with companies like Zoom and Slack on the plus side, you know, these working from home companies, what kind of forecasts are they're giving against, I suppose, companies like Disney that we just chatted about how, how their forecasts will be impacted. Yeah, and uh, I think it was Roku came out yesterday and, and up their guidance said they were benefiting a lot from people staying at home. Yeah. There's going to be companies that are going to see benefits. You know, that's um, Zoom and Slack are definitely two to keep an eye on. I'd say Teladoc is one that's going to have some kind of out there numbers. Um, and that's, you know, again, though, we just don't really know the long term impact of this. It's still a very short term event. Yeah. In the greatest yeah. things. Absolutely. Okay, so let's move on then to the company we never talked about. So Rory, you're taking it today. And the one we're talking about is, is quite a big one with a, probably a, a bigger CEO, which is uh, Berkshire Hathaway. Yeah, it's funny you introduced it like that, because I was going to start by saying um, Berkshire Hathaway is one of those very strange companies in which the CEO is probably far better known than the actual business itself. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think most people would have heard of Warren Buffett, uh, but kind of they, they probably just know him as a kind of very wealthy individual. Uh, I'd say the majority of those people probably know very little about Berkshire Hathaway, which is, of course, the business that, that made him a very wealthy individual. Um, and, you know, trying to condense the history of Berkshire or Buffett into a podcast segment would just be impossible. There's a huge amount of books written on it, some very good ones. Um, but the general idea was that Buffett realized early on in his investing career 
that insurance companies provided something very unique, which is called a float. And that was cash that the company took in in the form of premiums, which they didn't have to pay back until the insured event occurred. And they were able to invest with this money. And so essentially, it was free capital. He was getting free money to pursue his ardent investing. Uh, so he loved this and you know, invested heavily in insurance companies and used that float to invest in a broad range of different industries over the years. Like, and you know, there's, there's some very famous investments. We all know about Coca-Cola and American Express and Bank of America. And they also just bought some quite big companies outright, like Geico is fully owned by Berkshire Hathaway. Dairy yeah. Queen is fully owned by Berkshire Hathaway. Duracell Batteries, uh, Seas Candy. And then even, you know, you, you dive deeper and there's plenty of lesser known businesses that they've acquired spanning pretty much everything from construction to railways, real estate, media, utilities, like really you name it. Uh, they've got an they've got a interest in pretty much every industry there is. And um, so really what you're doing is you're investing in Warren Buffett's investing style. You're kind of yeah. giving them your money and saying, you go off, you're the best investor who's ever lived. You go off to do what you can. And since 1965, the S&P 500 has returned around 19,700%. Uh, that's probably a bit lower since uh, this most recent crisis, but that was, that was the last number on Berkshire Hathaway's annual report. Berkshire Hathaway's returned 2.7 million percent. Um, if you ever go on to Yahoo Finance, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you ever go on to Yahoo Finance and try and do the the chart where you do Berkshire Hathaway versus the S and P, it just breaks it. It just breaks the cycle. <laughs> it doesn't know how to how to show those two uh, side by side. And so, I mean, those are the kind of returns that turn people not into millionaires, but actually into billionaires. And both Buffett and his uh, business partner, Charlie Munger, both self-made billionaires through their work in Berkshire Hathaway. Now, over the last 10 years, Berkshire has actually underperformed the market, not by much. It's actually tracked it quite closely, but there have been some high-profile investments that didn't really work out very well. IBM's probably the most famous one, and then they have, a, they have a quite a high stake in Kraft Heinz, which has been hit quite hard over the last couple of months. And it's also in the last 10 years, the topic of succession has really become an issue. Buffett himself is 89 years old, Munger is 96. So over the last few years, they brought in a, a number of younger guys to help manage the investments. And that's led Berkshire to get into industries that Buffett had kind of historically avoided, most notably tech, and now they are the largest shareholder in Apple. And so, I mean, the, when you, like I said, if you invest in Berkshire, you're really investing in Buffett's style of investing, but it's also yeah. kind of been updated a little bit more recently. And, I, I really like Berkshire as an investment because it's it's got a very decentralized business model. All those subsidies that they own, Buffett and Munger don't even get involved in them. They just kind of let the managers run them the way they want to run them. They're highly diversified, as I said. There's loads of high moat businesses in the portfolio. And finally, they've got this great balance sheet with tons of cash, and they can use that cash to support those subsidiaries, or they can use it to acquire new businesses outright. So there's an awful lot of flexibility with Berkshire and you know, they have underperformed the S&P over the last 10 years, but I would not be surprised if they overperform uh, in any sort of downturn. Okay, interesting. You forgot to mention the most important part, which is uh, Berkshire's website. Oh, yeah. Best investors website you've ever seen. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, something, it's something to behold. Emmett, what's, you're obviously a big fan of, of Warren Buffett. You've, since I've started working for my Wall Street, he's a, always a topic of conversation. Yeah, and actually just uh, Rory touched on his and Charlie's mortality and I'd say I sold my shares 
I had an A share in Berkshire, Berkshire about, I think I must have sold about eight or 10 years ago because I was worried yeah. the two lads were going <laughs> to head off to the great big trading floor in the sky. And um, yeah. they're still trucking on, actually. I don't know uh, if that burger and coke a day that Warren swears by is uh, the secret to longevity, but I... I, I, I was just going to say that. There's, what, what's the name of the movie um, about the recent one? Becoming, is it Becoming Warren Buffett? Or, yeah, I think it's becoming Warren Buffett or being Warren and Buffett. One of the it's in people. that he yeah. he has the the McDonald's burger and the the can of Coke every day, and I was like, what a what a great um, what a great advertisement for both of those companies that he's yeah. he's eighty nine and and Charlie Munger's ninety six and not a butter on them so far. That's right. I think they own one eighth. Uh, Berkshire owns one eighth of Coca Cola, twelve and a half percent. I mean, it's incredible. And and I, I I might have said this in a previous podcast, but I think uh, at a previous AGM, Berkshire AGM, there was a can of Coke on uh, in front of everyone's uh, on everyone's table, and he said, "Look, whether you like Coke or not, I don't I don't mind. Just please at least open the can, so it counts as a sale." <laughs> you know. <laughs> that um. <laughs> That documentary, I think, is still on YouTube for free for anyone who's stuck in their house. Yeah. Oh, it's one of the best shows ever. It's not even, I mean, be odd if you listen so deep into a podcast and not have an interest in stock investing. But even if you don't have an interest in stock investing, it's an incredible story of a human being. I absolutely loved it. So that is Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, I just want to mention a few of the things, the new things, sorry, in my Wall Street at the moment. We've April Stock of the Month selection live in the app. Um, and we also have the Stock of the Month podcast, which will be live in the app this weekend. Um, we're adding our brand new stock to the shortlist on Monday. Rory, do you want to give any clues or hints about what the stock might be? Absolutely none. No. Save me <laughs> a surprise. So if you actually want to, to find out any, anything valuable about that new stock, make sure to go into my Wall Street on Monday and check that out. Right, let's move on to Jargon Busters. We have two questions here today. And the first question I suppose has nearly already been answered by Rory. Emma, you got a question in from a listener about Warren Buffett's investing strategy. Yeah, and actually Guillermo in Argentina specifically sent me an excerpt from the essays of Warren Buffett with commentary from the author, compiler Lawrence Cunningham. And in it basically was a quote that I've heard very many times and it was about how Buffett is not and I'm just loosely quoting the passage that was sent to me, is is not a fan of diversification. And it said in the passage that uh, Buffett reminds us that Keynes, who is not only a brilliant economist, but also an astute investor, believed that investors should put fairly large sums into two or three businesses he knows something about and whose management is trustworthy. Um, and uh, that's the, the variations of that quote have been thrown around and and uh, Warren himself said that diversification is protection against ignorance and it makes little sense if you know what you're doing. And they're very quotable lines and they're definitely, um, you know, you can hang on to those things, but in the wider context, when you study Warren Buffett's investment approach and what in fact uh, what Berkshire Hathaway has done is is absolutely they diversify. It's just I think over diversification is really the point that they're making. One should avoid over diversification. So uh, if you look at like in practice, um, Berkshire's folio has almost had five or six stocks that comprise about fifty percent, and about you know thirty percent of the folio is across about fifteen other businesses. So even the most concentrated portfolio, or in other words, ones with very few holdings, holdings generally has a couple of dozen stocks in it. So the point yeah. 
is not to me, the point is not that diversification is foolish. I think it's just mindless diversification is foolish. And I think understanding the businesses you own, getting a competence, core competence in, in, in an industry or two, and kind of getting to understand businesses at a very deep level will benefit you. You can't, we, we here at My Wall Street, I think there's a couple of industries and sectors that we put our hands up in the air and say, you know, that's not really our area. I personally, as I've very regularly said, have avoided banking, pharma and fashion. And yeah. that's an acknowledgement in my own investing failures in those areas. And, and therefore, I've developed, I think, an expertise in other areas. And a diversification is absolutely critical for successful investing. I don't know of any experienced investor or any book I've ever read or any podcast I've ever listened to from an investor of any nature, whether it's a venture capitalist right through to a five-year retail investor or investor with five years experience who does not acknowledge the need to diversify. It is absolutely critical. And Warren Buffett was not making a case against diversification. He was making a case against over-diversification or mindless diversification. So yeah, it's that kind of... not diversifying just for the sake of it. You, you still need to understand and, and know the businesses. Cool. So the second question then we got in through Twitter and it's about Revolut. So Revolut is a peer-to-peer payment system that's quite popular over here in Ireland and in the UK as well. Um, and it's moving to the US market. Now Revolut isn't a publicly listed company, but Rory, I wanted to, to find out what you thought about their move into the US and how they'll match up with the likes of local competitors like Square's Cash App or PayPal's uh, Venmo. Yeah, so I think, I mean, Revolut is very big over here. Um, yeah. In the UK and Ireland, it's, it's, it's huge. I think pretty much everyone I know has, has Revolut. Uh, I think that 7 million users was the last number I heard. That was uh, back in October last year. And Venmo, which is owned by PayPal, has 40 million users at the moment. And the Cash App, which is owned by Square, has 24 million users. And I think the thing with these kind of challenger banks and payments apps is that they're really highly dependent on network effects. Uh, the reason that most people end up downloading one is because someone they know has it and they want to be able to pay that person back or send that person money or something. If your friends don't have it, there's very little point in you having it. And we've certainly seen that in Ireland where Revolut has rapidly captured market share while their biggest rival in the UK, Monzo, has kind of totally failed to gain a foothold here. You know, They just don't really exist here. Um, so I think Revolut will have quite a tough time in the US. Even though I love the product, I think it's a great business and, and uh, love the app, use it every single day. But like, I think once someone settles on one and, and their network kind of collectively agree that that's the app they're using, I think it'd be very hard to get people to change over to a different one, especially when the functionality is, is pretty similar across all three of them. And so what I think is probably going to happen, what I think is more likely is going to happen is you're going to see, start seeing some consolidation in the space. We've already seen PayPal make a kind of big investment with Mercado Libre down in Latin America. Um, and I think that's probably what's going to ha- be the more likely scenario of this is that the bigger players just start kind of buying networks. And um, mm. how MasterCard and, and Visa were, were born, you know, they just kept buying networks in various places and, and building up a, a, a giant network that way. So, yeah, I think they're, I, I'll be interested to see how they get on, but I think they'll have a tough time. Okay, cool. Thanks for that. Um, so let's move on to our elevator pitch now. So when we met up yesterday to discuss plans for this podcast, we ended up having a great conversation about contrarian investments in the current market climate. So Emmett, you pitched four industries as the, the best contrarian investments you could pick right now. Airlines, cruises, hotels, and gigs and gatherings. 
So instead of our kind of our typical elevator pitch today, I'm going to throw those four back at you and Rory and ask which one of these industries you'd pick to invest in right now if you had to. So the four of them again are airlines, cruises, hotels, and gigs and gatherings. Um, Rory, we'll come to you first. Which which one of those strikes you most as the best contrarian investment? It was actually a, a fifth one that didn't get on the list there, which is the one, one that I was pushing quite heavy, which was uh, retail. Oh, really? Yeah, I was, I was very hot on possibly making Nordstrom the stock of the month. And we even did a, a little poll in the office to see which, which stock people were going to avoid the most. And it was good. Yeah. Nordstrom was the, the winner. So I thought that was quite a, a good test of a real contrarian investment. And I think it's up like 50 or 60% since then. So, so what, what do you see in retail that, that makes you maybe think it's being overpunished a bit? Well, I think that good retailers in the space will survive this and thrive. And when yeah. they do, there'll be a lot less competition out there for them. Um, I think that like e-commerce is never going to fully kill retail. People like the experience of going to the mall, meeting their friends, trying on clothes. And Nordstrom was one of those businesses that I thought had all the elements that you look for in a, in a business that can survive. They had far fewer stores than Macy's or Kohl's. They were in the best areas, these AAA malls with a really high average spend per square foot. And they just seemed to have, like, they had an e-commerce uh, angle as well. So I just thought Nordstrom would, would, would definitely survive this. And, and at one point, I think the business was sitting at like a $2 billion market cap, which just seemed, seemed crazy. That was mm. all the bad news possibly baked in there. Okay. Emmett, which, which contrarian investment would you pick? Yeah, and I can't argue with Roy there. Um, but the I think gigs and gatherings, if you take it, accommodation, aviation, and cruise lines, well, I think for me, if it was stack rank, them, I think cruise is the one biggest trouble. Um, yeah. But I think... Especially after saying it takes a billion a month to, to <laughs> just keep them alive. Yeah. and uh, But you're right. I think gigs and gatherings, and I, I almost put retail into gatherings because what I think we all crave is to be around more people again and just have that mix of thoughts and experience stuck together. So I'd be interested in gigs and gatherings, whatever yeah. form that might take, because it doesn't require opening the wallet. I think there's still, there's less fear of going into your local Nordstrom or maybe a reasonably lowly densely populated gig um, you know, in your locale, when eventually things come back, we'll go by degrees. And I, I think gigs and gatherings is one that I, I, I would most bet will rebound rebound okay cool um so that's it that's about it from this week's stock club um don't forget there's loads of great new stuff in my wall street at the moment if there's anything you want us to discuss or explain on the next episode of stock club please make sure to get in touch with us you can catch us on twitter that's at my wall street hq or you can email us at pod at my that's p-o-d at my don't forget to subscribe to the stock club podcast and if you're enjoying it please leave a review for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. Uh, that's it from the three of us here today. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. 
Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.